When a female night clerk at a local gas station vanishes during her shift, clues about her disappearance become sparse, leading the case to go cold. It is not until years later that the evidence to understand what happened to her and others come to light. This is the story of Jessica Herringa. Hey there, and welcome to Valkyrie, your podcast for true crime stories. I'm your host, Dee. Today, we go back to April of 2013 to a town called Norton Shores, Michigan. This town has a population of just over 25,000 as of the 2020 census and is in Muskegon County in the middle of the western side of what I call the mitten of Michigan on Lake Michigan. I couldn't really think of a better way to describe the location just to give you the visual picture. Jessica Lynn Herringer was a 25-year-old mother of a three-year-old boy named Zevin who worked nights at a gas station to help make ends meet. Because Jessica had worked there for some time, she had known most of the customers that would come into the store regularly, both men and women, and they knew Jessica as well. On April 25, 2013, a regular female customer came into the store and saw Jessica. She commented to her that she should not be there alone and it was dangerous for her to do so. She added that her boyfriend should come in and protect her and watch out for her. When another male customer overheard these comments, he chimed into the conversation saying she's got her customers to look out for her too. The female customer actually mentioned this comment to the police and also added that Jessica seemed obviously uncomfortable by this man and that the comment made her shake. Uh, and also start shivering, like a chill went up her spine. This made the customer very concerned for Jessica and made it a point to park outside until she saw that man leave for the night. However, this night was not the night that this customer should have been concerned for Jessica. It was the next night. On April 26, Jessica was again working her regular night shift. At 11.10 p.m., a man who was a regular customer to the gas station pulled up to fill up his tank. However, the pumps would not turn on. As he went inside, he knew Jessica would be working, but he realized that she was nowhere to be found. He noticed that Jessica's purse and wallet, along with her other belongings, were still sitting in the back, and he, he found it odd that she would leave the store unattended, so he dialed 911. Something to him just felt really off. The 911 call says, I'm at the Exxon, but there's no one here, and it's kind of suspicious. When the police came, they found Jessica's things and ruled out the possibility of a robbery, since Jessica had over $400 in cash in her wallet, which was still there along with all the cash in the register and nothing apparently missing from the items in the store. As they continue to search, they find parts to a gun near a pool of what looked to be blood just outside the back door of the gas station. This would later come back to match Jessica's. As they check the surveillance from nearby businesses, they do see what looks to be a silver Chrysler town and country minivan pulling away from the gas station. As they check the register, they see the last recorded transaction from the register was a cigarette lighter at 10.55 p.m. So again, they knew that this window of time seemed to be pretty small from 10.55 until 11.10 when the next customer comes in trying to get the gas. As the police investigate further and question locals about the potential disappearance of Jessica, the manager of the gas station provides some additional details. She says her and her husband drove by the gas station around 11 p.m. and they did recall a man in a silver minivan. She said she saw the man approach the gas station, complete a U-turn, and turn off its headlights as it pulled behind the store. She saw someone standing at the rear of the minivan with the latch open, saw them adjust something in the back, and then shut the latch. They opened it again, adjusted something in the back again, and then closed it again. She said she could guess the man's height based on the fact that his head was just above the roof of the van. After getting the door shut, the man walked to the front of the van, got in the driver's seat, and drove away. 
The manager did get a glimpse of the man who was driving the van. She said he had a reddish orange sweatshirt on, wavy hair that was very messy, and that there didn't appear to be anyone else in the van at the time. Unfortunately, they were not able to see the license plate close enough, and neither could their surveillance from the neighboring stores. And the gas station itself did not have any surveillance camera for security. That just seems crazy to me. I don't know about anybody else, but that's that's insane. When the store owner asked why there was no cameras, they said the cameras were used to prevent theft and they didn't seem to have a theft problem uh, unless people are, you know, stealing people, I guess. <laughs> That's what they have to worry about here. By 1238 a.m., the police had a canine team starting to search the area, but they were unsuccessful in finding anything. The manager sat with a sketch artist and described the man that she saw in the van and Jessica's family and the police made the sketch to the public. This drove tons of leads coming in about because people looked so close to this sketch. Everything from the phone call to the Facebook posts reporting anybody who might look closely related to this picture kept the police busy as they followed up on every lead, hoping to find the one lead that would lead to Jessica. The police set forth to investigate people of interest. This included Jessica's fiance, Dakota. They were concerned about him after reading Jessica's journals, which described the relationship as tumultuous and that they fought regularly. They also described Dakota as very controlling. Did he perhaps have a jealousy concern that might cause him to go overboard? That was the police thinking. When they spoke with Dakota, he stated that him and Jessica only shared one car and one cell phone, and Jessica had the car that night, which was found at the gas station. Dakota said even he had to wait for a ride to the gas station after receiving the phone call that Jessica was missing. When police checked his cell phone records, they did find that he had been home the entire night, and then he was released. Jessica was known to have at least two other men who had taken a liking to her. One guy they looked at as a suspect because they believed that while he was interested in her, that Jessica's feelings were not reciprocated. He seemed to be a lot more interested in Jessica than Jessica was in him. The other suspect was Jess Ammerman. They say they believe that he may be a suspect because him and Jessica were friendly, but they were unsure how friendly exactly. But at least they had kissed a few times, unsure if anything more had happened. Now, Jess was married, and on the night of Jessica's disappearance, he said he was parked in a parking lot down the road and was on the phone with his wife for about an hour. When police looked for surveillance cameras and got his cell phone records, this information was, in fact, confirmed. At one point, they had Jess take a lie detector test, but would never release the results to the test because of legal reasons. While the police felt he may have had a motive, or perhaps even his wife, they could not approve anything. His wife was also questioned at this time, and while she knew about Jessica, she said she was okay with the relationship, but they still held that the possible motive of jealousy was, was there. Over the next year, police would put together a task force, which would have as many as 75 investigators at its peak throughout the year researching this case, devoting over 12,000 staff hours, conducting 1,400 follow-up investigations based on tips and leads received. They executed 33 search warrants and 20 consensual searches. This included cellular, telephone, computer, and social media searches. Twelve ground searches and two underwater searches were also conducted trying to find Jessica. Unfortunately, no leads turned up any more information as to what happened to Jessica, and they were still not able to find her. In February of 2014, a detective named Kristen Cole in Kalamazoo, Michigan, contacted the Norton Shore Police Department to tell them that they may want to look closely into a situation that they just had arise in Kalamazoo. They had an incident in which a young girl was walking to her boyfriend's house and a suspect came up behind her and dragged her into his vehicle and kidnapped her. He held her hostage for hours and sexually assaulted her numerous times and told her he was planning to kill her, although he did eventually let her go to near where he abducted her. The suspect was Brad Allen Mason, a convicted felon who had been in prison previously on abduction and rape charges 
in 2004, along with an indecent exposure in 2011. When the police went to arrest him, he came to the door with a fake gun and refused to drop it. He was eventually gunned down by the police who could not immediately tell that the gun was fake. The reason why they felt this might be related to Jessica's case was that Brad's two victims, the one from 2004 and now this most recent, all seem to be close in body type and looks to Jessica, petite young females with glasses. As the Norton Shore PD worked closely with the Kalamazoo PD, they found that while on parole for the indecent exposure, he was living in a halfway house not far from the gas station which Jessica worked at. As they looked at Mason's cell records for the night of Jessica's disappearance, it does show him having turned off his cell phone at 9 p.m. and not turning it back on until the morning. When the police questioned Mason's living girlfriend, she refused to speak to the police. Unfortunately, they couldn't find the smoking gun link that would tie Mason to Jessica's disappearance other than his confirmed kidnappings and the circumstantial evidence that had him living near the gas station at one point. This would cause Jessica's case to go unsolved longer until they felt they were 100% sure that they had the right guy who could lead them to foolproof evidence of Jessica. What the police didn't know is that another woman's disappearance will be the opening they need to find these answers about Jessica. On June 29th in 2014 in Dalton Township, Michigan, Rebecca Bletch, a 36-year-old wife and mother, was jogging when she was shot multiple times and killed. Her body was found on the side of the road. On the other side of the road is where they found her belongings, which included an armband, a cell phone, headphones, and sunglasses, but they were in a very, very neat pile, which is weird. The woman who found Rebecca said she was still breathing despite being shot in the head. She initially thought maybe she had gotten hit by a car and pulled over when she saw her lying on the ground. While the police were able to find some spent shell casings, not much else was found to help lead the police to who might have killed Rebecca. The autopsy showed that Rebecca died of four gunshot wounds from three bullets in the head from a 22 caliber gun. They also said Rebecca had bruising around her eyes, abrasions to her face and wrists. Of course, the first suspects for Rebecca lead to her husband, but accounts say that they had a great marriage, although they do admit to fighting the day that Rebecca was found and a $200,000 life insurance policy was pulled out on Rebecca. When police spoke with Rebecca's family, the family was adamant that it was not her husband. Her husband spoke with the police and denied any extramarital affairs and denies having any involvement in his wife's death. Ultimately, they had no evidence to continue to pursue Rebecca's husband as a possible suspect. But who could have done this? The location that Rebecca was found was very rural, no businesses, mostly just empty. And speaking with people in the area, one woman recalled getting ready to go jogging that day prior, but saw a man nearby who made her feel uncomfortable. So she turned around and changed her mind about her run that day. Police would find that suspect and he would be a registered sex offender, but searches of his home and alibi would later exclude him too. So this case also went cold, similar to Jessica's. This was still not the missing link, though, but let's keep going. On April 11, 2016, Investigation Discovery would air an episode on their series called Disappeared, which discussed Jessica's disappearance. While the link to Jessica had not yet been found as of that airing, what they don't know is that a week later, another crime will happen to allow all the puzzle pieces to begin to fall into place. On April 16, 2016, Madison Nygaard, a 16-year-old girl, was walking home from a party in the morning hours in North Muskegon in Michigan. She had been partying all night, and her original ride home was passed out locked in a car. So she decided to walk home from the party, figuring it was only about a 20-minute walk, but she got lost. She became upset when she realized she was lost walking on the side of the road. Her cell phone only worked on Wi-Fi, so she could not call anyone to come get her. When a silver van pulled up after seeing her obviously distraught, Madison engaged with the man who asked if she was okay. 
She said she was lost and asked if she could use his cell phone and politely declined a ride. The man agreed to using his cell phone but said, hop in. And Madison got in the van. She said that once she got in, the man rolled up the windows and locked the doors. When Madison noticed this, she said she needed fresh air and asked to roll the window back down, but the man refused. When Madison brought up the cell phone again, the guy said his phone was dead. This is when Madison realized she might be in a bad situation. So she asked to be let out. As soon as she did, she said his personality immediately flipped. He just sat there staring at her. She began to cry and asked him several times to stop the van. While continuing to stare at her, he reached under the driver's seat and pulled out a gun. It was then that Madison knew he was not going to let her out, so she began to fight back. She unlocked the door and opened it, and even though it was still moving, she jumped out. She got up and started running as fast as she could, and when she looked behind her, she saw the man standing behind his van, pointing the gun at her. As she ran, she came up to a house with someone standing outside. She ran up to them and screamed that he was trying to kill her and he was chasing her. The woman she saw on the side of the road helped her call 911 and reported the incident immediately. Madison had road rash from jumping out and was brought to the hospital where she described the vehicle and the man who had tried to kidnap her. When the police went to the scene where Madison had escaped, they found a 22 caliber casing on the ground. They also visited a local blueberry farm down the road to see if they had any surveillance around that time. What they find is a silver van making a U-turn with very clear footage of the silver van. From here, they were able to narrow down the van owners in the nearby towns to 31 owners. The van had some defining characteristics, so they had a list and they were able to visit each one to confirm when they found the right one. The van belonged to a man named Jeffrey Willis. He was a 46-year-old forklift driver at a local furniture company. They showed Madison a picture of Jeffrey Willis, and she immediately identified the man as the man who attempted to kidnap her. They arrested Jeffrey Willis, who denied knowing Madison. They still arrested him with the positive identification, though. While the police were interviewing Willis at the station, asking him about why he was in the area of Madison's attempted abduction, they were already executing a search of his home and his van. What they find in his home are some very strange things. In this home, there was a five-page printed list of U.S. serial killers with some names circled. The names that were circled were Lawrence Bittaker and Roy Norris. These two are known as the toolbox killers from the 1970s. They were known for abduction, torturing, raping, and ultimately killing their victims. Some similarities are shown between the toolbox killers and Jeffrey Willis, aside from just their names being highlighted in his home. They both had vans. They had similar victim patterns and types. So the police start to look a little closer. When they go to Jeffrey's van, what they find is a black toolbox with a padlock. Inside the toolbox, they find what detectives call a rape kit. Handcuffs, gags, syringes, and ropes, amongst other things that, that are in there. They find a pair of gloves that are sent to be analyzed for potential DNA hits. They also find two handheld video cameras and a small safe under the driver's seat, which contained the gun, ammunition, insulin, and syringes. Inside the toolbox was a diagram of the human body with labels for injection sites. It was obvious that Jeffrey Willis had a plan from these findings. They also find a 22 caliber gun that they're able to link as the same gun who shot and killed Rebecca Bletch. The research on this gun does show that it was sold with a laser pointer sight, and it was sold to a worker of Willis's who had said that Jeffrey Willis had stolen the gun from her. The laser pointer brand had matched the fragment of plastic that was found at the gas station where Jessica Herring had worked. The DNA in the gloves comes back. It matches for both Rebecca Bletch and Jeffrey Willis. So now that we can link these cases and we start to see where this is all starting to come together, 
The police continue to look, and what they find next is even more disturbing. When the police searched Jeffrey Willis's computer and a portable hard drive that was found hidden in a heating vent, they find what he was involved in. On the computer and hard drive, they find a folder labeled VIX, V-I-C-S. This would be called Willis's Trophy Files, where he kept memories of his crimes. Inside the folder had incriminating evidence further linking him to Jessica Herringa and Rebecca Bletch. The folders were named JLH, in, in parentheses DZ13, for Jessica Lane Herringa, and another folder was named RSB, in parentheses FZ plus C14. Investigators broke the code by using a simple system to replace one for A, two for B, and so on. So JLHDZ13 is translated to JLH for Jessica Lee Herringa 42613. Now, April 26, 2013 is the day that Jessica disappeared. For Rebecca, the same system, RSB standing for Rebecca Sue Bletch, was the code translating to 62914, the day Rebecca was shot and killed. Jessica's folder opened up further to contain images of Jessica. In Rebecca's folder included a wanted poster for the person who killed her, a copy of the news story about her, and a woman who looked like Rebecca lying on a bed wearing a bikini. Also on the computer were thousands of pornographic videos of women being kidnapped, raped, tortured, and then killed. The investigators said these videos were the most horrifying, gruesome videos they ever had to watch. Also on this drive, they would find a folder labeled homemade, which included videos that Willis had filmed of his neighbor's young girls in their bedroom undressing. He also had about 15,000 videos of girls swim meets focusing on the general region of the girls from local high schools with subfolders to include the initials of the school. Now the police had the guy who was responsible for Jessica, Rebecca, and an attempted kidnap of Madison, but they kept digging to make sure that they uncovered as much information as possible. When it came to the trial, the defense argued that the evidence was circumstantial and it was not Jeffrey Willis, but instead his cousin, Kevin Blum. Kevin had been involved with the police previously and he had known Rebecca. They claimed it was his gun that was found in Jeffrey's van. Now, Kevin Blum had been questioned on June 21st, 2016 for a violent crime unrelated to Jessica and and Rebecca and Madison. During that time, he had told police that he had information about Jessica Herring's disappearance, even mentioning a few details that were never released. He admitted to the police that his cousin, Jeffrey Willis, had called him the day after Jessica had gone missing, saying that he had a woman and there was going to be a party. He went to his home and found Jessica lying on a gray tarp with a head wound face down with her hands and legs tied out to the side. She was naked and not moving, so he assumed her to be deceased at this time. He noted that there was a video camera set up on the table next to her body. Now, while the investigators searched and did retrieve several cameras, none had images of Jessica on them, although they did find an owner's manual for one camera that they could not find, they could not locate. Kevin goes on to claim that Willis went into detail about how he had sexually attacked the woman who was lying on that tarp. Kevin claims Willis told him that he had been following and watching Jessica and ultimately hit her and put her in his van. He then used his toys on her, raped her, and tortured her. Kevin also admitted during that conversation that he and Willis had wrapped Jessica up in a sheet, folded her up like a taco, and drove her to a location where they dug a hole and buried her. Now, the police listened to all of this, and again, which Kevin Bloom just, he later recanted saying that he never saw the gas station girl. 
but the police definitely believe he did see her and helped dispose of her body. However, they admit that they do believe he was lying about the location where they allegedly buried her, as the police went to that location and found no body, even searching with cadaver dogs to help aid in that search. Nothing. Kevin said that Willis must have moved the body, but when police said that Willis's cell phone had pinged miles away at the time they had allegedly been burying the girl, Kevin then said he was lying about everything and he knew nothing about nothing. They believed his initial claims because he was dry heaving and visibly shaking the entire interview. So he appeared to be telling the truth. Jeffrey Willis took the stand during his trial. He claims that the items in the toolkit were used for him and his wife, but his grandson had found them one day and came out with handcuffs. So he moved him to his van to kind of keep him out of sight for the kid. His ex-wife would later testify that this was in fact a lie. When the prosecutors got to cross-examine Jeffrey Willis, they called him out for knowing Madison Nygaard. He claims he did not lie about knowing Madison, but that when the police questioned him about why he was nearby the area when Madison was abducted, it wasn't that he was lying, but he admits that he was being evasive. He said that he, he knew at that point he was being investigated and he was trying to see what the police thought or at least what the girl had said. The prosecutor ends this with, you're evasive, I'm lying, and we'll just leave it at that. Now, Kevin Bloom's wife takes the stand to help prove that it was not Kevin who killed Rebecca. He was with her at a soccer tournament in the nearby county that his daughter was playing in. So it couldn't have been him. She says that he never left her side or randomly disappeared during the time that they were there. So again, not him. Now, as we go back to Rebecca, the theory is that Willis may have pulled up alongside Rebecca running on the side of the road out for a jog. When he attempted to abduct her, she fought back and he shot her several times. Now, after all this, all the trial is done, the jury ends up deliberating for one and a half hours before returning the verdict of guilty for Jeffrey Willis on two counts of first-degree murder for Jessica and Rebecca, plus kidnapping for Madison, as well as the use of a firearm in the commission of a felony. He would be sentenced to life in prison without parole for his roles in Jessica's disappearance and Rebecca Bletch's death. As the family got up to read their impact statements, however, Willis's lawyer addressed the court requesting that Jeffrey be allowed to leave and not have to be subjected to listening to the impact statements. The judge ruled that he was allowed to leave. This is crazy to me. The judge ruled he was allowed to leave and not have to listen to the impacts of what he had done. Now, as he walks out, people are screaming at him, coward, coward. He locks eyes with Rebecca's family and blows them a kiss disgusting but what they do instead is they end up recording all of the statements and playing it for him on the three-hour trip to his new home in prison boom because of the outrage of him not being required to listen to these impact statements a new law was enacted they call it the rebecca bletch law requiring convicted felons to hear the impact statements of those they harm another law to come out of these cases is known as Jessica's law. Now, don't be confused as there's different states that have Jessica's laws for different crimes. This particular one is a bill that requires gas stations and convenience stores operating between 11 p.m. and 5 a.m. to have at least two scheduled workers on for that shift or require the store to install and maintain a security camera that would record attacks, robberies, and other crimes that would threaten workers and fine the store if this was not done. Now, Kevin Blum, he was charged with lying to the police during a violent crime investigation for two counts, an accessory after the fact for his help in disposing of Jessica's body. 
he was sentenced to time served, which at that point was 476 days plus five years probation, which required him to wear a GPS monitor. Although Jeffrey Willis still claims to be innocent despite the damning evidence, he appealed his case, but the court upheld the conviction. He is attempting to appeal his case again, but seems to disagree with his counsel on how that process would work, and he's had to switch lawyers in the process. I don't see this happening personally. (laughs) Now, this case was crazy, but kudos to Madison Nygaard for being a survivor and in doing so, unknowingly solving the murders of two other women. So what do you think? If you like this podcast, please remember to follow us and subscribe. Find us on Instagram at Valkyrie underscore true crime or find us on TikTok at Valkyrie podcast, all one word. Our website with the show information is ValkyriePodcast.Buzzsprout.com. That will include some of the source material for this episode. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you.